Well, uh, we've been witnessing this morning um, the sacrament of baptism, which uh, is in its nature uh, a testimony to a covenantal relationship. Before all of you as witnesses, Jordan and Courtney have promised before the Lord to raise their daughter in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in accord with Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This promise is made with a hope and a trust that in doing so, that is in raising Emma Joy and, and Eleanor in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the Lord will, in accord with his own will and grace, establish in their hearts and lives the promise of the remission of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in his redeeming work on the cross of Calvary. The promise that he's declared in his word, that the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Jordan and Courtney have willingly placed themselves under the obligation to attend carefully and prayerfully to Emma's spiritual welfare. And they've done that while trusting in the word and promise of God. And thus, a covenant stands between them and their God regarding their daughter. The children's catechism, used throughout the Presbyterian Church for almost two centuries, asks this question, what is a covenant? And the answer little children have been reciting back is, this is, Lubke's the only one who knows that? Let me ask that again. What is a covenant? That was pretty good. Um, if uh, we were like 200 years ago in the Presbyterian Church and that was the answer you'd give, there'd be discipline. But uh, we're not there, so you'd have to be a little more forceful than that. But it's an agreement between two or more persons. And that's the simplest and most fundamental description of the matter. Before the pilgrim mothers and fathers sailed to this land, they were asked by some of their financial backers to state in writing their intentions and the nature of their commitment in regards to those intentions. In other words, how do we know you're going to do what you promise you'll do? And in their response, the pilgrims gave a list of several inducements for their faithfully doing all that had been proposed. Inducements, children, are, are encouragements or things that, in this case, would make them want to do what they had promised to do. And among these inducements was this statement. It's the fourth one. We are knit together as a body in a most strict and sacred bond and covenant of the Lord. Of the violation, we make great conscience and by virtue whereof, 
we do hold ourselves straightly tied to all care of each other's good and of the whole by everyone and so mutually. In other words, one of the reasons they're giving, one of the inducements is we're bound by a covenant. We have entered in together into a covenant before God and between each other. And we are strict in our intentions to keep that covenant promise that we've made before God and to each other and to you who are our backers. <coughs> you can have confidence in us based on the fact that we consider ourselves to be bound by that covenant relationship. Three years later, when they finally reached America, they found it necessary to form what we refer to as the Mayflower Compact, in which they said this, we as names are underwritten, this is in part, having undertaken for ye glory of God and advancement of ye Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in ye northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents or these statements solemnly and mutually in ye presence of God and of one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of ye ends aforesaid. So to bring about this, this that we've promised, we have entered into a covenant together. And this covenant binds us. It binds us before the Lord. It binds us to one another. Now, I've cited these examples to help us see what a covenant is in action, what it looks like when it's really being carried out. Now, let's turn our attention to the passage here at hand, Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You can see immediately here that the problem that the Lord is now dealing with is one of covenant unfaithfulness in Israel. It's said by the Bible commentator Matthew Henry, that corrupt practices are the genuine fruit and product of corrupt principles. Therefore, when men, women, and children behave contrary to God's word, where he reveals his will so plainly, that sinful conduct is the result of some godless principle which is driving that behavior. The breaking of a covenant with a few exceptions, beloved, is corrupt behavior produced by corrupt or eroded principles. There's something wrong in the heart, and it has produced an action that results in a promise being broken or a commitment ignored or a duty being withheld. When a covenant is broken, 
it is indication of something evil in the heart, something bad in the heart that allows that to happen. In this case, here, if we pull back and ask, what's the sinful conduct that the Lord is complaining about here? The answer is, it is people dealing, as Matthew Henry says, falsely with one another. And they're doing so because they, in one way or another, think falsely about God and neither understand him nor his word. That's the big problem here. They're dealing falsely with each other. And they're doing that because they, there's some failure in their understanding of who God is and of their duty before him and in the instruction that he gives in his word. They're described here as faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of their fathers. Now, when we see this in this place within the context of this book, of this prophecy, it shouldn't surprise us at all. It's not surprising because they've already been proved to be faithless toward God. That's what chapter 1's about and the first part of chapter 2. Their lack of faithfulness to God, not keeping their covenant promises to God himself. The whole first chapter and the first part of the second chapter, they detail it for you. And the simple truth is this, beloved. Those who will dare to be faithless towards their promises to God will think nothing of being treacherous towards men and women. If you can be faithless to God then you can certainly be faithless to men and women. If somewhere in my heart I think that I can lie with impunity to God, deceive and mock him, deal treacherously, as Henry says, with God in tithes and offerings and defraud him like these people did, then why would I have any compunctions about lying to my wife, or if I'm a wife to my husband, or if I'm a son or a daughter to my parents, or to my teacher, or to my friends, or to my enemies. Why would I have any compunctions? If I think I can get away with that before God, why would I be concerned about getting away with it before men? Matthew Henry says, thus conscience was debauched. Its bonds and cords were broken. A door was opened to all manner of injustice and dishonesty. And the bonds of relation and natural affection are broken through likewise and no difficulty made of it. And that is, there's no problem. There's no sense of guilt. <coughs> Excuse me. Now let's look at the prophet's words here in particular. He starts out by saying, in the name of God... Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? That's a simple, basic, biblical principle. But beloved, I would submit to you that the denial and rejection of this truth has filled our world with violence and with sorrow and with hatred. If you pause and you think about it, 
It's the cause of man's inhumanity to man on every level. Because men and women reject their creation at the hand and will of God on the most basic level of their thinking, they act brutally towards one another. Life is not a purposeful creation when in this doctrine is denied. It's not a purposeful, purposeful creation with a divine design. It's an accident of evolution. Life is not a right. It's a questionable matter of chance based on who may be determined to be the fittest. And the result of this corrupt principle is the unnatural behavior we see so freely and atrociously exhibit in our world today. It shows that men and women are not only godless, but because of their sinful nature, they lack even the most basic and natural characteristics of humanity. How does that come to pass? How does that develop? Well, it begins with this denial of this basic principle that we all have one Father, we have all been created by one God. The psalm says plainly, this is Psalm 100 and verse 3, Know, know and understand that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is the truth. And where this principle has a place in the human heart, there is humility. There is thanksgiving and love toward God and toward our fellow man. Where that principle reigns in the heart, where that truth bears upon the thinking and the actions in a real sense upon those who believe it, it translates into, first of all, a spirit of humility and then a, a, a praise to God, a song of thanksgiving, and then lastly, love towards God and one another. Now you can take this idea of God having made us and given us life and are all having one father in that sense, you can take it universally. And you can also take it particularly. It is, as Paul says, God, when we talk, take it universally, it is God who gives to all life and breath and all things. Paul said that in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of all their dwelling places. Stock says in his commentary on Malachi, nature itself and humanity, though man have no other bonds to link them together, ought to keep men from hurting and injuring or transgressing one against another and to bind them to be helpful and profitable and to do good one to another. Just nature itself 
and the character of humanity. So this is true in a universal sense, but it's also more particularly true. You can also take this particularly in respect to your salvation and the redemption of any believer. God is our father. He's your father, he's my father. And it is he who makes you and me who believe new creatures in Christ Jesus and gives us that new birth. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one Father. We have one God. We are bound together in him. So in short, there is a unity common to all by the right of divine creation, and there is a double bond of unity among the people of God based on that same right. Now we look at it in the context of the immediate testimony here of Malachi. In the immediate context, to me, the meaning is very clear. The Jews were created by God, and they were made an elect family and given birth as a nation by God. They are unified by a double bond. The argument from this is so strong. There should be no prejudice among them. There should be no false dealings between them. There should be no defrauding of one another, no deliberate unkindness among them, among any of those who believe and understand that God is God and the Father of all. That's the simple principle here. And if that principle is anchored in the heart by faith, then it's going to manifest itself in this blessed way in which there is no prejudice, there are no false dealings, there's no defrauding, there's no deliberate unkindness. Among those who believe this, there should be honest, kind, and forthright dealings with one another on every level. It ought to be that way in the context of the home. It ought to be that way in the context of the church. It ought to be that way at work, at play, in matters civil and social, and doubly so between those who are the elect of God. Romans 12.10, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's what becomes brothers and sisters in Christ who recognize they have one Father, and they've been created by God himself. There are two special and chief causes of love and goodwill amongst men. The one is kindred affinity, or blood kinship. The other is one and the same society of religion, says Stock. You know, I never noticed it before, but until I got to this prophecy and started to think about these things. But in Genesis chapter 15, after Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers appear before him, and they seem to bring a message that they've made up uh, from Jacob to Joseph. Um, whether they're making it up or not, we can't say for certain, but we don't have any record of Jacob saying this. They just show up to Joseph and say, by the way, Dad told us to tell you this. And whether it's genuine or not, 
uh, or just another ploy on their part. Their reasoning actually illustrates exactly what we're saying here. His brothers say that Jacob sent them to Joseph to tell him this. And this is Genesis chapter 50, verse 17. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And when they say that to Joseph, he breaks down and weeps. But do you see the two grounds that they offer here? The first one is, Jacob says, forgive us because we have the same father. We're brothers. So forgive us because we're brothers. And the second ground for which they ask to be forgiven, forgive us because we have the same faith. We have the same God. So they're making that appeal on the fact that we're part of a family and we worship the same God. And so, Joseph, you should forgive us. And isn't it wonderful that on exactly those grounds, Joseph does forgive these brothers who treated him so poorly, so despitefully. But here's the complaint that the Lord has with Israel. We have the same God. We have the same Father. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? To act faithlessly is to deceive for the purpose of pillaging. Now, pillaging isn't a word we use every day. Some of you maybe have not ever even heard it before, or this is the first time you've heard it, except when you were reading maybe some pirate story. It's a word that comes down to us from Latin through the French, and, or from Latin and then through French and then to us. And its origin has to do with plundering or simply removing what belongs to someone else by either stealing it for yourself or ruining it. And that's the two sides of pillaging. Pillaging is not just going in and stealing what you want for yourself. You do that first, but then you don't leave anything behind for the people who possessed it. So it would be the equivalent of someone coming in here, robbing all of us, and robbing the church of all that it has, and then burning it to the ground so that we wouldn't have anything left to ourselves. That's what pillaging is. And the idea here was that the people were overpowering one another by deceit, and then as a result, defrauding each other. The commentator Richard Stock, who I've quoted a couple of times, says that these are those who live in it and to satisfy their own lust and desires, care not whom they wrong and injure. They will despise, defraud, deceive, and oppress any in buying and selling, in letting or setting, by manifest usury 
and other oppression. All is fish that comes to net with them. Interesting expression. You know what that means? All is fish that comes to net with them. They're fishing, right, to get what they can. And anybody who gets anywhere near them or gets involved in anything with them, they're fish to be caught and used, not to be uh, helped or encouraged. And this is the way these people are acting between themselves. And the Lord here is saying, why have you broken this covenant that you're under? Why are you doing this? Why are you acting so dishonestly with one another? <coughs> because the result of faithlessness is profaning the covenant. It was, in effect, hollowing out the covenant of the fathers. And Hebrew is such a picturesque language, and it really is a blessing sometimes just to bring these pictures to bear. The idea of, of hollowing something out. So you have this foundation on which a covenant relationship stands. And what they were doing is they were hollowing out that foundation so they could no longer hold the relationship and would collapse. That's what they were doing. And you think about it that way. What good is a covenant if one of the parties deliberately fails to keep his or her part of the promise? What good is it? You think of it in the context of, of a marriage. Unkept vows hollow out the foundation of that covenant relationship. And the void produced causes the relationship itself to collapse. In nature, we find many species who are not above eating their own, as we say. Sadly, it's true among men and women and children. And even more sadly, it's true sometimes among Christians. There's no sense, though, in the beasts of creation or creator. That's not in their simple minds. But beloved, there's no excuse when men and women act beastly towards one another. There's no excuse. Those creatures out there, they don't have any idea that they're the creation of a good and loving and great God. We do. We are blessed by God to have a new life through Jesus Christ, and we're aware of that. Those creatures know nothing of anything like that, but we know it. And to act beastly towards one another is unquestionably sinful. Sin obscures this relationship even in the most intimate and beautiful relationship where love and deference should reign. We find within the marriage bond bitterness and jealousy and gouging and brutal behavior. And what excuses are floated in an effort to make this godless behavior seem somehow righteous or justified? 
all sorts of things are floated to try to give a different view of what's taking place. Now, I keep bringing up marriage because that's the issue here. And as we get down to the end of this section, we'll see that. We won't be able to do that till next week, Lord willing, but that's where we're headed. That's, that's where the Lord says, why am I saying about this, this about you? Because look what you're doing within the context of your marriages. But we're still in the introduction to that. So if we ask now, well, what specific covenant of the fathers here was being broken? Because that's what they're accused of, profaning the covenant of their fathers. I think that the answer is found in Exodus. If we go back to chapter 19 of Exodus and begin with with verse 5, we read this. The Lord is speaking. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, speaking to Moses. So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set before them all excuse me, these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people had one response. See, the Lord's setting before them a covenant. He's saying, let's enter into a covenant relationship. This covenant relationship is, if you do everything I ask of you, then I promise I will bless you. I will bless you like no one else if you do this with me. What do you say? And in verse 8 comes the answer, and they, all, the, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So the Lord says, here's my covenant, what do you say? Moses brings it to the people, and the people say all together, we will do everything you ask us to do. And just in case you might not be familiar with what comes next, that is what it is they promised to do, God proceeds to give to Moses the Ten Commandments. The commandments that Jesus sums up in this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the covenant they're breaking, beloved. You see it? This is the covenant of the fathers that they're breaching. They have promised to do all that God commands. What God has commanded is that they love each other like they love themselves. And they are defrauding one another. They are stealing from one another. They are ruining each other's lives. And they're doing it with impunity before the Lord. And the Lord is saying, if you believe these things, that you have one Father and that you have one Creator, why are you doing this to each other? 
That's the challenge that's being set before them. On this, said Jesus, these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the charge of the Lord against his people is that they've covenanted and promised to love one another as they love themselves. That was clearly a part of the law from the beginning. The summary that Jesus gives was actually stated in the law, in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now next time, Lord willing, we will see the specifics in which they practiced this unfaithfulness and broke covenant. But for now, I'd like you just to consider these things before we break up and move downstairs. The first one is this, beloved, that bad principles, that's what gives rise to bad behavior. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 43, beginning there and through 45, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Secondly, anything less than an attitude of biblically defined love towards others is sinful and a breaking of proper covenants. In the home or anywhere else, it's sinful. Don't try to make it something that is not. In Leviticus 19, verse 11, the Lord said, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. We are those who, though it's an awful struggle at times, Jesus told quite plainly that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us so that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have, said he. Thirdly, there's no covenant relationship in which love, honesty, and gracious help and deference are more fitting, beloved, than the marriage covenant. I keep going back to this, as I said, because it's the heart of what follows in the text. There's some understanding historically that the Jews, because of the hardships and abuses that were carried out by the captivity, found their Jewish wives repugnant. And as Jerome says, they put away their wives and young women for those who had not been brutalized by the captivity. The wives and young women, which by reason of their poverty and injury of the long way and weakness of sex, impatiently bearing the labor, were wasted and became both infirm and deformed in body, whereupon they matched with strangers who were fresh in years, beautiful and comely. 
So they had these wives that they had been dragged out of Jerusalem with them off to Babylon. They had suffered under the poverty and the, and the abuse of that period. And now they had dragged them back. And when they got back, those women were worn out. So they were looking for new ones, younger, fresh ones that they could match with. And that's the abuse here. This may have well been the specific issue, but it betrayed a larger problem. I'm going to stop with this quickly here. I have to do it because we're about to enjoy our annual Thanksgiving feast. I want to go back to the pilgrims for just a second. The celebration of Thanksgiving has been turned into something suspicious and the pilgrim adventure something to be ashamed of by those with a secular agenda of progressivism. Not everyone who has been caught up in that agenda or that web of error and deliberate deceit is trying to destroy our culture and rewrite history. Some are genuinely moved to concern for various reasons, including a basic misunderstanding of the pilgrims' times, motives, and aims. They themselves were oppressed, but the fact is ignored in the mind of many of their critics. They don't think of the pilgrims as being oppressed, but they were oppressed. But in their minds, they deserved to be oppressed because they were Christians. Those wanting to wipe this event from our culture and national psyche have really chosen a strange event to attack in the name of diversity and tolerance because it was actually the first celebration that embraced diversity in our nation's history. They didn't exclude those who were around them who were different. They included them. They didn't tell them to go make their own way. They said, come and celebrate with us. And the reason I'm bringing it up is the adventure of the pilgrims recognized from the start that all men and women have one father and are the creation of God. One of their stated purposes in coming here was this, a great hope and inward zeal they had, and I'm quoting from them now, of laying some good foundation or at least to make some way thereunto for the propagating and advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ and those remote parts of the world. Yea, though they should be not, but, but even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. I don't expect those who despise the gospel of Jesus Christ and who reject its redeeming message to either understand or appreciate that aspect of their reasoning. But it was in part out of love to their fellow men and women natives or not, that they came bringing the bread of life, the gospel that leads to eternal life. One of the reasons ignored by present-day historians for the feast we're going to celebrate in a few minutes was to be a testimony to the Native Americans who had witnessed their previous day of prayer and fasting during a crippling drought. And those Native Americans were astonished when after that day of prayer and fasting, the Lord sent rain. And this harvest was the result of that rain. 
And the pilgrims wanted to be sure that they saw their spirit of thanksgiving to the one true and living God through Jesus Christ. And that's why they invited them to join them. They wanted them to be witnesses, to see them as a believing people putting their trust and confidence in God and now giving thanks for his blessing. It wasn't an effort to rob these men and women of their culture, but to share with them the message from God that there is one name given among men by which you must be saved. And that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They came among their brothers, ready to cry, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is so clear and so, Lord, deep, and yet, Lord, teaches us and instructs us in so many ways. Father, we as a body of believers have made covenants, covenants with one another on a very personal level in our homes, covenants on a more public level here in our fellowship together, covenants and promises to others. Lord, we pray that you would grant us the grace to be faithful to those covenants. And Lord, where they have been breached, we pray for forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to live by the principles that we believe. And Lord, where those principles are in error, we pray that you would search us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us, Lord, by your grace in the way everlasting. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We pray, Lord, that you'd have mercy on us for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray.